Hey everyone, uh, we had a bit of a long break. Uh, welcome to another episode of On the Ball. As you know, Ball stands for Best Advice and Life Lessons. It's a podcast show that I started during the pandemic. I mean, just to get over the monotony of the whole uh, pandemic. But the focus was to extract best advice and life lessons from world-class performers and leaders from various fields by deconstructing and teasing out their stories, routines, success habits, techniques, hacks, secrets, and also the best advice or life lesson they have ever received so that you can use and apply to your own life and work. So today, I'm thrilled to have a longtime colleague, manager, and mentor at Microsoft, Bob Davis, uh, on the show. So who's Bob? Bob was the corporate vice president of Microsoft 365 Growth and Experience Org. I'll come to the part why I uttered his title in the past tense. Um, but Bob has had a stellar career at Microsoft since the time he joined in 1993. And um, this has been his only job after he graduated from University of Washington with a bachelor's degree and uh, London School of Economics with a master's degree. We'll talk to him about that. Uh, Bob is a founding member of what became Office 365 and has occupied leadership position since its inception uh, to becoming a fastest growing multi-billion dollar business. And it's perhaps the biggest enterprise SaaS business in the world with millions of customers and hundreds of millions of users, which is pretty awesome. Um, he is the ultimate customer leader at Microsoft long before there were formal roles around customer success, customer engagements, and so on at the enterprise level. Uh, Bob was my manager. I've learned a ton from Bob, watching him up close and personal during years of building product services and world-class team over the years. Um, so with that being said, hey, Bob, welcome to the show. Let's play ball. Hey, sounds great, Srini. Thanks for uh, hosting me on my on your on your podcast. That that was quite an introduction. I did want to correct one thing. In addition to working at Microsoft, I, I did uh, have a couple of other jobs. My my wife is fond of saying Bob's only had three jobs in his career uh, that he got paid for, uh, and those were uh, working at Taco Time, uh, working at a ski shop, and then at Microsoft. So it wasn't just Microsoft. I had a few other careers too. No, I appreciate the little detail, Bob. I think it's great that you work for a ski shop. I know you are so passionate about uh, ski, you, you and Lorena, so it's great that you work on that and also some food. Taco. I, had to get out, I had to get out of retail and actually on the slopes. I'm sure that came in good stead at uh, <laughs> Microsoft as well when you ran Office 365. So, Bob, I have a lot to talk to you about, and uh, I, I bet we will run out of time. Uh, but we'll jump between topics and make it a little bit more lawn uh, linear, if you will. So let's jump in. Um, the first thing that I'm very curious about is the origin story, if you will, of uh, Office 365 um, or the predecessors, right? BPAS. For those of you, the listeners who don't know BPAS, it's Business Productivity Online Suite. A little mouthful and clunky name, yes. Uh, but it was a precursor to Office 365 and before that, MMS, Microsoft Managed Services. Life was simpler in many ways. We shipped a ton of on-premise software and updates every two to three years, right? And we didn't have to worry much about the customer's environment. Um, they were responsible for a lot of it. 
And Bob, legend has it that you, along with a few others, were part of that founding team, and I know many of them, and I'm proud to be part of one, um, one of the services, which is the first version of Office Communications Online, which was a precursor to Skype for Business and Teams in the Cloud, working with uh, Gurdeep, Sean Pierce at the time, um, and you built the first BPOS cloud and then Office 365. Could you take me back a little bit in terms of how exactly that happened? Yeah. Uh, maybe you can reflect back. Um, yeah, I, I, I'd be happy to. We, um, you know, it really got its start. I, I, in fact, I started within Microsoft's own IT organization. And this got its start because when I came up through the ranks of IT, Microsoft was moving from being a consumer company with uh, just Windows and Office to being an enterprise software company. And as you mentioned, we shipped a bunch of on-premise soft on-premises software. And IT was a fabulous place to work because we got to test all of that enterprise enterprise software and make sure it was enterprise uh, grade. And so we as part of that, we called ourselves Microsoft's first and best customer, meaning that we deployed first and we were the best customer and that we deployed everything and we gave the product engineering teams a ton of great feedback. And and over the years I was in IT, uh, our, you know, obviously Microsoft grew a huge enterprise business and our product teams uh, actually started to listen to not just us in Microsoft IT, but also to our customers and and you know evolve their product based upon uh, customer feedback. And so um, our, our sort of influence within IT on the product group was we went from being kind of the only customer that they listened to to being just one of one of many customers. And a couple things happened that really compelled uh, myself together with, as you mentioned, there were a few others, it wasn't just me, um, to go to um, Steve Ballmer, who was our CEO at the time, and Bill Gates and propose uh, that we run our software as a service. Two, two things happened. One was we would often go to our executive briefing center and talk to customers about how Microsoft runs Microsoft on Microsoft. And a couple of customers, uh, one of them was Energizer, the battery company, uh, said, hey, that's great. Uh, we sell, we make and sell batteries. We don't want to run uh, email software or SharePoint software. Why don't you guys just do it for us? You seem to have this figured out. We don't need to patch all these servers and stuff. So that was one, one, one thing that we were hearing from customers. Second thing that was getting kind of frustrating when we were in IT is we would meet with the product group and say, hey, we have this idea of an awesome feature for the product. And most of the time, the product group would agree with us and say, hey, that's a great feature. Um, and at the very, very best case, they would build it into the next version of the product, which back in those days, we released every three years. Think of things like Exchange 2000, Exchange 2003, et cetera. Um, and then even once we released those products, our customers wouldn't deploy them for you know, a number of years after that. In fact, three years after we would release a product, only about 30% of our customers would upgrade. So imagine the frustration if you have all this influence on your product groups from being within IT at Microsoft, you come up with a great feature. It takes them three years to release it, and then customers don't even start to use it until six years after your idea. So that just didn't seem like the type of uh, you know project we wanted to be involved with. And so for those two reasons of getting uh, innovation to our customers faster and then getting our customers out of sort of the mundane work of managing 
um, some of this infrastructure. Uh, that was really uh, what we went to Bill and Steve and pitched many, many years ago. And to their credit, they absolutely agreed we should do this, but this was very different. They, they knew from the very beginning that it was very different than operating like an outsourcer we, where we would just run server-based products for our customers. They knew that this was about building a hyperscale um, service for our customers. And they said, you guys, we absolutely believe in this. You, we want you to get started on it, but we don't want you to do it from IT or even from our consulting organization, but from within our product groups. And so that was really when we moved into the, a number of us, including a big chunk of our IT group, moved into our product groups uh, to start building these, these services. That's fascinating, Bob. Um, did you know at the time when you said, I mean, looking back, it all seems very prescient, uh, but I bet at the time, oh, yeah, I don't think anyone knew that, you know, running Energizer's IT, for example, or patching the servers would take you to building up uh, software in the cloud, if you will, or the, or the SaaS service. Um, did you or others know at the time how far we would come? And, you know, this is a massive multi-billion dollar business it is today. It's perhaps the yeah. largest. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely not. I mean, I couldn't have foreseen the the massive success. You know, like you said, with millions of customers, hundreds of millions of users. Literally, every single industry relies on this service. Certainly, I that 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 far surpassed my wildest expectations. But I did know a couple things very early on that we could better serve our customers, so we could provide them much better service than they could um, on their own. And then there was something about that I hadn't fully grokked at the time, but became very clear to me after a while that we could get on this virtuous feedback loop of feedback by being so closely connected to our customers, you know, where, you know, instead of again, waiting three years to ship software, we were doing it on a much more frequent basis. It took us a while to get there, um, but, I knew that if we were able to do that, we could innovate and meet the needs of our customers much more than we were earlier. In fact, we were really known as the 80% company. We would develop software that worked for 80% of the customer's use, and then they had to buy a bunch of consulting time from Microsoft or other consultants to come and sort of tailor make it for their needs um, because we couldn't afford to really um, you know, get it get it exactly right. Whereas with the service, we could could afford to do that. And you know, some of the stories were pretty interesting as we were coming up. You know, you mentioned we started with M Microsoft Managed Solutions or MMS, which was really just um, servers masquerading as a hosted service. But it was really servers that we were running, dedicated servers per customer in our cloud. And then BPOS, which stood for the Business Productivity Online Service. Uh, which is a name only a bunch of engineers could come up with because our customers certainly thought that acronyms sometimes st stood for <laughs> a, big, a big piece of something or other. <laughs> I won't mention what they said sometimes. But BPAS, uh, you'll, you'll remember this, Srini, because you were involved in it. Um, you know, it only scaled to 10,000 users. So any large enterprise couldn't be a customer of ours. Um, it only scaled to 10,000 users. Uh, on this multi, it was our first multi-tenant service, so we could have two companies, multiple companies uh, on the same infrastructure. And I don't know if you remember this, Srini, but 
like the number one requirement most customers gave us is that we had to run the BlackBerry service for them. Like yep. you couldn't take over their email and make them run the BlackBerry service. So we had, we learned a lot about, hey, if you really wanna be legitimate in these businesses, you have to meet all of our needs, not just the ones that Microsoft chooses to meet. Um, and then of course it became Office 365 and now Microsoft 365. It's been through a few turns. Fortunately, uh, marketers and not engineers came up with some of the more the, the, the better names for it. No, absolutely. I do remember that. In fact, uh, you know, before BPOS was shut down, right? The last BPOS server was shut down. We all got a piece of BPOS, if you will. And <laughs> it was actually framed and Chang and Mike Ziok, Chang Kawaguchi and Mike Ziok. So Chang gave me a framed piece of BPOS, which actually had a Blackberry stuck inside a frame and actually from the data center, one of the data centers, yeah. which is pretty fascinating. <laughs> um, so Bob, moving along, right? You went to University of Washington, here UW, uh, yeah. for those of you in uh, PNW. Go dogs. Yeah, go dogs. <laughs> and you're on the board of UW too, right? Um, that's, uh, uh, and then you went on to London School of Economics. How did you end up there? And also, can you, Talk to me about your journey into tech and software for a career and, you know. Uh, sure, I'd, yeah, sure I'd be happy to because mine's probably not not consistent with a lot, a lot of the ways people get to get to tech. Well, so, you know, look, I was pretty sheltered growing up. I grew up uh, in on the eastern side of our state here in Washington, mm -hmm. and we're really fortunate to have a world-class university in the University of Washington here in the Pacific Northwest. So I feel really fortunate to have to gone there, ha having gone there, and it really expanded my horizons. In fact, I, I joked that I only had a few paid careers. One of my unpaid careers was between the time I was at the UW. I was an intern in the White House. Now this, I, I don't usually put this on my resume any longer because uh, since the Lewinsky scandal, I was there before uh, Monica Lewinsky <laughs> yeah. was. People sometimes wonder what, what in the heck I was doing as an intern in the White House. But um, it was it was fascinating. Um, and, and the only way that I got into the White House was a professor at the UW suggested it to me. And that expanded my horizons. I mean, imagine, I mean, and you probably can't imagine because it's like this at Microsoft, being in a place where, you know, what what happens that day gets announced to the entire world and has worldwide and global impact. And so um, when I was there, I went to the London School of Economic, Economics fully expecting that I was going to go into a career in the foreign service and have all kinds of global impact. And uh, while I was at the LSE, I also got exposed to, you know, I was the only American in my class. I got exposed to a lot of uh, diverse thinking, um, Bob, you know, can I first... interrupt you for a second? Yeah. How, yeah, how did you how did you decide to go to LSE? Oh, again, one of my professors. Some some of the work that I was doing, kind of, I would say research, but I was an undergraduate, uh, was aligned with the European community, and so I wanted to continue that sort of research and work I was doing. And uh, the London School of Economics was one of the best places uh, to do that, and also had a one of the professors there was one that I was I was kind of working closely with, but. Um, Anyway, you know, my career sort of took a turn because I was there and I, I sort of realized through interviewing some people that the Foreign Service wasn't exactly the job and the excitement that I was looking for. It, you know, I, I don't mean to, I, I think people who go into public service do an amazing amount of work and particularly those who go into our Foreign Service do amazing work. I just found that it just wasn't going to kind of uh, light my fire. And so 
what I needed to do was be involved in uh, kind of, I, I always liked lifelong learning and being involved in change. And the one thing that kept coming up for me was technology. You know, technology keeps changing. And so, um, you know, I uh, I got involved in some tech at LSE in, insofar as I was doing econometric modeling and um, running running statistical analyses on my on my computer. Uh, but I was far from being a, a coder, but I at least got involved and, and, and saw the promise of technology while I was while I was there. And so it was really through, you know, my time at the White House, I wanted to work for a company that had global impact. Um, I, you know, when I started at Microsoft, it was about 5,000 employees, but I was sure that it would be that kind of company. It was going to have that kind of impact on the world. Um, and I had an opportunity when I first started at Microsoft in IT to help open a, uh, open up a bunch of our international subsidiaries. And having gone to school in Europe, I really wanted to be involved in, in still traveling the world and helping to build our, our subsidiaries. Got it, got it. And I remember you telling me some time back, Right when you started, you you perhaps I think you were traveling all around and you went to Australia. So that that brings me back to the question of what was your first role at Microsoft? Do you remember who your first manager was? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. What did you do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I I kind of used my network to get in the door at Microsoft. You know, like I said, it was a small company. It's it's hard to imagine now, but it was a small company, and not everybody wanted to work at Microsoft. And honestly, I think the IT group was looking for more youthful enthusiasm than any specific skills because they knew, you know, people had to be quick learners. And so what I what I did was um, as we were opening up our subsidiaries, uh, we had this dilemma where we were taking these support calls for our software, uh, but initially it was free. But then we had to move to paid for support. And so we had to actually build, like back in those days, there wasn't this concept of CRM systems and you know, SAP didn't really exist. Um, and we had, and, and our subsidiaries couldn't afford big AS400 systems. So we had to build our own, you know, literally using Visual Basic and SQL Server, our own systems to take payment for support calls. And literally my job when we first started was writing the reports that uh, we would use for those. Um, and so I, I say all that because I got in the door just sort of through youthful enthusiasm. I learned a little bit about uh, technology while I was doing it, but more importantly, getting out into our subsidiaries, you got a real view of how the company worked. Like you knew how sales got done. You knew how we would build a sales force. You knew how, um, you know, we weren't selling soap for example, if you had a new version of the software coming out, you couldn't just discount the old stuff. You had to take it all back. Um, I learned a lot about that from being out there. It was a great, great experience being thousands of miles from the headquarters and out where business really got done. Got it. I, I, I was smiling when you said reports, writing reports, because it reminded me of this uh, TPS reports from this movie Office Space. <laughs> so, so you. That was my out. job. That was that. Anyway. Was <laughs> you got it. Um, so moving along, uh, Bob, can you? Uh, so you started out there, and I'm sure you had a bunch of tough challenges at Microsoft, um, or even otherwise, right? What were some of your toughest challenges, and how did you overcome? Uh, do you remember if you harken back over the last uh, 26 yeah. years, something? Yeah, 
you know, I'll say just at a, as a, at a high level, Srini, you know, I, I feel like I've always been able to keep a lot of perspective. And so I always feel like any of the challenges I've faced have paled in comparison to the adversity that others. So I kind of always start from this position of, you know, there might be a challenge that comes up and I'm able to sort of step back and say, okay, is this really, you know, the end of the world type of crisis or, you know, is this something, you know, I can just work through? And that, that sort of brings a sense of calm to me whenever there's challenges is just to sort of start to put things in perspective and it helps ground me. Um, although I will say the biggest challenges and the and and the most important challenges I, I've ever faced have been away from work. You know, things like health and family um, have always been much more uh, challenging for me than, than work uh, type type challenges. And again, I try to put things in perspective, keep keep my health and my family first and focus on that whenever they whenever they come up. No, that's so spot on. And you know, I you say that and I, I remember that so well. And one of the few things that I've, you know, many things that I've learned from you in terms of staying calm under pressure. Uh, I remember I mean, every customer conversation or crisis that we dealt with over the years, right? Um, you always take a step back. Um, I've not seen you very agitated, but uh, yeah, putting things in perspective, that's that's great advice in terms of how you can actually get out yeah. or something. Yeah, and you know, Srini, whenever we've had those types of issues with, um, you know, customers who are upset and rightfully upset, again, sort of the place I come from is, because I've been part of this business for so long, I feel, you know, we have we have the very best engineers in the world uh, working behind us. And and so that that gives me a lot of strength, you know, knowing that, you know, we are going to make mistakes. We are, you know, what's the what's the iron law of technology? I think it's that software has bugs, hardware fails and people make mistakes. Yeah. Um, and we can usually protect ourselves, you know, with from people making mistakes, from having, you know, a, a very redundant architecture. We can do the same thing with hardware failing, but software will have bugs. So it, we're not going to be perfect, but I love the fact that we don't make the same mistake twice. And, and when I am able to say that to customers with confidence, you know, customers typically understand because they're not infallible either. They just want to know that we have our act together and that we're going to, we're going to make it better in the future. We're not going to make that same mistake again. Totally. I think that's another thing that we all learned in terms of not making the same as make new mistakes, not make the same mistake twice. So, Bob, you've been at the company for a long time now, and you have seen the evolution of the company, the leadership for many, many years, from Bill to Steve to Satya. Um, could you give me your perspectives and talk about your views in terms of how it has, how the company has evolved, the leadership has evolved, the culture has evolved over the years? Uh, sure, I'd be ha I'd be happy to. You know, it, I I have really, you know, I'm, I've seen it change uh, quite a bit, and you know, I know this podcast is viewed by a lot of people that aren't at Microsoft, and um, you know, Satya Nadella is the real deal, like. What what you hear from him publicly is how he is, you know, to the extent I see him in private, I've been in plenty of small, small meetings with him and that permeates the entire org. Like when he talks about customer obsession and empathy, 
uh, it comes from deep within him. And our company has uh, changed substantially um, over the, over the years, uh, and, and and most notably under his his leadership, uh, to be much more uh, you know customer obsessed. It, it helps also that we're delivering services for customers. You can't run and hide and pretend things are different than what customers are actually seeing and giving you feedback on. Um, it's it's been a it's been a substantial change, and I think that comes again from you know great great leadership that makes it a priority. Um, it also has been a fundamental part of our business model to be um, directly connected to our our customers literally every second of every day. And they are relying on us for arguably some of the most mission critical aspects of their of their business, you know, how they communicate, how they uh, collaborate, uh, not just with themselves, but with others. God, what is fascinating to me is it's a large company. It's not a small company. And if you look at the history of so many large companies that have failed to adapt, failed to uh, keep up with the times, either in terms of culture, leadership, all of that, it's fascinating how Microsoft has reinvented, changed, evolved over so many years, if you will, 40 plus years, I think. Yeah. And it still has a lot of energy and different kinds of things. Like you said, what Satya brings to the table in terms of customer obsession, empathy, compassionate leadership, uh, people, energy, driving results, and all of that. Um, it's, it's, uh, I've seen it evolve, but not as long as you have. Um, yeah, it definitely is a, you know, I, it's, it's great to see that it's um, maybe not you know, definitely not so cutthroat as it was at one time, but it's even more successful when it was uh, back in those days when it was uh, more cutthroat and less customer focused than it is today. Um, it's, you know, it's a much more enjoyable place to work and um, people can have, I, I think back in those days, nobody ever imagined that they'd have long careers at Microsoft. And, you know, now when you work here a long time, you want to have it a place where you love to come to work every day and it doesn't have to be a battle. You bet, absolutely. And we spend most of our waking hours at work, and it, it's just a fun place to be. It, uh, the people that you work with and the, the culture it is. So, Bob, what um, moving along, talking about you know success um, by all stretch, um, you've had some great successes at Microsoft. I mean, the fact where you are in terms of your career. Um, I want the listeners and I want to know, I'm more curious as well in terms of learning from your successful habits and rituals. What are some of your morning rituals or things that actually typical day look like? What did your first 60 to 90 minutes look like? Uh, do you have a boot up sequence and what habits are important to you over the course of the day? Yeah, sure. I, you know, I, first of all, I love mornings. I'm a morning person, so <laughs> it kind of helps. Uh, and I get up quite, quite early. Um, and one of the things I, you know, part of my, you know, part of my role over the last, you know, 15 years or so has been to deal with uh, issues within the service. So I would get up and sort of, it's almost like checking the overseas cables. You know, I'd get up in the morning and see what was hot, but I didn't immediately jump into it. I would sort of uh, review what came in 
And then I would always get up and and work out. And I would say that's both a you know physically and intellectually working out. Physical was really important. You know, I mean, I I think anyone who uh, gets up and goes for a run or even a walk for that matter, but does something, it just clears their mind and the solutions come much more into focus than if you're just reacting to them in real time. And so I think that knowing what the hot issues were, but not diving into them immediately um, and and instead making sure that I was focused on myself, both physically, you know, health, like getting, getting some exercise and then intellectually, you know, like I would, I often uh, would, this wasn't necessarily my boot up sequence, but um, I, I always made time for uh, reading and reading things that uh, weren't necessarily relevant to my role, like, you know, reading fiction or uh, reading history or things like that. Got it. And like the one thing I'm curious about is most of us reach for the phone when you first wake up and, you know, do you do that or do you more of a, you, you know, when to be unplugged? No, I, I know I I've always been pretty good at knowing when to be unplugged. Um, honestly, I've tried to use the phone to help me with that, you know, setting sleep settings that go well past the time that I get up in the morning. So I don't I don't feel like oh, all of a sudden I'm getting this deluge of, of things. But I've also turned off a lot of notifications like I don't get a lot of notifications on my phone uh, at all um, just because, you know, even even during the day. Because it's like I'll, you know, I'll look at my email uh, when I'm ready to look at it, not when uh, my email tells me there's a new message. But I've always seen you like stay on top of things. You're always like a zero inbox kind of a guy. I see your response super fast. Wow. Well, you must be on the really important things with me, Srini. <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely not. A, I was never a zero inbox person like getting down to the you know where your inbox has nothing in it by the end of the end of the day because it was kind yeah. of a it was a uh it was uh mission impossible for me since stuff would come in at all hours of all all sure. the days um but i did you know I, I i did get some great advice one time which was keep first things first mm -hmm. and i was always i've always been pretty good at knowing what the top priorities were for the day and working through them um, as opposed to getting pulled off to the side to work something that wasn't as hot as something else. That's a good reminder um, in terms of triaging, prioritizing versus just reacting to issues. Um, yeah. That's great. So Bob, what would you say is, uh, this is a two-part question. What would you say is your superpower? Uh, and what is a bad habit that you're trying to get rid of or you're working on right now? <laughs> well, I, I think my superpower is that bringing calm and progress to high pressure situations. Um, you know, I can, I can, you know, I can, when, and you could, this has happened to me not just at work either. When there's emergencies that go on, for some reason, I'm just able to step into a position of being very calm and working the problem um, as opposed to, you know, running around uh, with a bunch of uh, wasted energy. Um, that, that's been something that I've been I've been really, really good at doing. And, and I think that is a superpower for for me that, that works, serves me well, both at work and in other situations when there's um, really important things that need to get done. Um, the bad habit that I would say and my wife would absolutely agree with this is that I am a pleaser. 
Um, I, I kind of want everybody to be happy. And as we all know, there's plenty of situations where not everybody's going to be happy. And sometimes making a quicker decision uh, would be would be uh, better. Um, and so that's that's sort of uh, the the thing that I um, I'm trying to work on a little bit right now is not just try to be a pleaser in every situation. That's a good one. I haven't heard that before. That's a good one, Bob. Um, speaking about your superpower, right? Um, I know of no one, and I say this because I've, I've worked with you a long time. I've worked with so many people, but I know of no one at Microsoft or otherwise who has met with so many customers, engaged with customers from strategy to sharing vision, to crisis management, landing trust, regaining trust and confidence back after big disasters. Um, and I have the uh, you know utmost respect for you and what you do there. Uh, what are some of the key learnings and you know from these type of engagements and what have you learned over the years in terms of what worked and what would be some best advice for people who are in those roles that you can pass on? Yeah, you know, I'll just make this really simple, Srini. It's all about listening. Um, you know, even though there might be a, a crisis to work through, listening to like a customer is the most important thing. In fact, I heard a great expression that I keep front of mind, and this would be the advice I'd give to anybody. You've got two eyes, two ears, and one mouth. Use them proportionally. That's well said. That's well said. Thank you, Bob. Um, so, on that note, over the years, you must have made hundreds and thousands of uh, work, personal and professional decisions. Um, can you think back and say, hey, if you were to pick one or two of your best decisions that you made or investment of time, what would that be? Um, that's an important question. So because we can learn so much about the actual decisions and also what are some of the thought process in terms of leading to those decisions, as tough as those decisions may have been? Um, so that's one. And then the flip side is, what was a really bad decision that made you think and wonder and you still, you know, think about it? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I've always, like the it, kind of the best decisions I've made have been always being conscious of kind of where the action uh, is and so, for example, um, I'll just talk about sort of the my, the beginnings of even being part of uh, this journey of moving customers to the cloud. I was kind of on a path to become Microsoft's chief information officer. There's no, you know, there's no. Uh, I, I don't know whether I would have been Microsoft's chief information officer, but you can envision going through the career path through IT and having some success there. That's probably where I was going, or I could have. Uh, taken a taken the path of helping to build this very nascent business, and I chose that second path of building this small business. Now, in retrospect, you can look at it, you can say, "Wow, what an easy decision that must have been." You know, you must have known this was going to become some huge business, and I, I had, you know, I didn't know that. And in fact, I'd often seen people start on a big thorny challenge and quickly get replaced, and 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 um, so. Um, but I really did feel like this was where the action was going to be in the company, like moving to the cloud. And in fact, in those days, we didn't call it the cloud. And I always felt like 
you know, always being aware of where the action is or to use that expression, skate to where the puck is going, um, always gives uh, people opportunities and certainly gave me ample opportunities. Um, I also always played to my strengths. Look, I'm not a Carnegie Mellon trained, uh, fantastic developer and developer leader, but my what I do understand having run enterprise IT for a large company like Microsoft is what other enterprise IT people um, need and I have empathy for. And so, um, you know, that was sort of the thought process whenever I make some of those big decisions is like, where, where's the action at and um, and how can I play to my strengths in in this this role? Now, the really bad decision, that one's always that one's always been easy for me because I get asked this a fair amount. Um, you know, early in my career, I didn't step in when there were personnel issues quickly enough. And I have seen where, um, you know, per a person who was a bad fit with the team or was causing disruption in the team and how I enabled that from letting that fester, uh, you know, it impacted the org. It impacted really great people by not acting on that quickly enough. And so I've gotten much better over the years at, at not letting things like that fester and addressing them and engaging early on them. And sometimes if you engage early, you can change things around. But I really created some problems in some of my earlier orgs and my earlier examples of being a manager where I didn't step in and address personnel issues quickly. Got it. I mean, for sure, I think the best decision in terms of getting onto this BPAS Office 365 bandwagon. I mean, as we discussed earlier on, right? It was definitely not something that was known. It would be a success. Um, so I think it's it's a, it's a risk versus reward, and it turned out to be pretty good. Um, hey, Bob, um, is there a misconception? What are the most common misconception about you? Is there one, do you think? Like yeah. I, well, I think people view me as an extrovert, like that I'm always out there. You know, I'm a pretty high energy person, um, but I'm I'm not an extrovert at all. You know, look, I, I, take, <laughs> I take my job really seriously as a leader, and I definitely believe that energy and enthusiasm, you know, is a force multiplier. Um, you know, this was especially important, like during the pandemic and working with remote teams and bringing energy, you know, people, People in my organization during the pandemic sometimes, you know, only get a very small amount of time with me, and I I, I wanted to lift people up, and um, that was that was something that I had to really apply myself to, both with the pandemic and earlier on in my career. And I know that I'm not an extrovert because at the end of the day, when I've had to really put a lot of energy into, you know, meetings or um, you know, customer events or things like that, I am physically exhausted, like it drains me. But I think people would not, would say, hey, Bob, you're, you know, you're, you're the person that's always dealing with customers. You're always out there at EBCs. You're at big public events speaking on behalf of Microsoft. You're the consummate extrovert. And, and I'm definitely not. I'm much more of an, of an introvert. And nobody really knows all of the planning that I put to into those types of things so that I'm prepared um, before it before they happen. Yeah, I've known you for a while. Um, I would not have known. I, in fact, I don't know that you were an introvert. Um, 
given you know how you how you show up um you know both internally within microsoft and externally as well and on the note the last note that you said about preparation that's one thing i've learned a lot from you in terms of how you go prepared into any of those meetings i mean the amount of research and preparation that you do um, that's pretty amazing down to the detail i mean you're a detail oriented person um, yeah i feel like once so, i have that preparation then i can go in you know with again bringing a bunch of energy and i don't get you know kind of taken off but it is one of those things i guess kind of in addition to being a pleaser i wish i could go in a little bit more off the cuff i wish i had that superpower right on um yeah talking about things that i have learned from you right are there any role models or mentors you had uh so two or three people that you were uh, you have been most influential who have been most influential to you and do you have any names or people whether it is formal or informal mentorship doesn't matter but role models um and 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 what can you offer in terms of what you learned from them what were some of your biggest learnings any one or two nuggets yeah um you know, uh, yeah, I'd be happy to share some names uh, with you. Uh, hopefully, they'll be familiar to some of your listeners. But um, Ron Markovich, who uh, works here at Microsoft, he was one of my uh, early managers. All of the people I'm going to talk about here are very high integrity, but he's he's super high integrity person, and he was the one that taught me about keeping first things first. You know, that was a great lesson I learned from from him. Um, Rajesh Jha, who you know, Srini, you know really well, you know, also super high integrity, the ideal match of engineering depth and customer empathy. I mean, we've been so fortunate to have, uh, you know, the right leader at the right time. And Rajesh has been the longest serving leader. I think within Rajesh's time that he's been leader, I've counted at least six leaders of, um, you know, one of our competitors. Um, during that time and you think about how important having that continuity of leadership and we've just been so amazingly lucky to have somebody that's you know anyone would say has incredible engineering depth and inspires engineers thousands of engineers in his organization but has an equally high dose of customer empathy uh, you know that's that's a magic combination that I I, uh, I certainly look up to and know I could never em emulate and then the last person I would say is just really my mother. I mean, she was a single parent um, raising two boys and she always made time to say, you know, leave things better than you found it. And I feel like I've been able to do that in my career at Microsoft. Um, those would be some of the some of the role models and mentors for me. That's awesome, Bob. Um, Ron, definitely. I don't know if Ron, Ron himself would remember this or not. He was my skip level. Um, once uh, when we were part of uh, Server and Tools and BPOS, I think he was leading BPOS as well. And Rajesh, of course, uh, we all know and work. I've worked with them over, over a number of years. Um, so thank you for that. Thanks for sharing. And thanks for sharing about your mom as well. Uh, hey, one thing at the outset, I mentioned that Bob was the CVP of Growth, uh, Microsoft 365 Growth and Experience Org and that I would come back to that. Uh, well, here's the big news um, in case you didn't know. Bob is retiring from Microsoft after almost 28 amazing years at the company. 
Um, so Bob, congratulations. I'm dying to know what exactly are you planning to do? What does your day one of retirement look like? <laughs> well, I don't really have a day one of retirement, but I certainly have my wife and I have a lot of uh, travel plans, both domestic and internationally. You know, I think it was uh, Ferris Bueller who said it best, you know, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you, you could miss it. And <laughs> we're we're excited to get out there and and see what's there. You know, I was actually considering uh, retirement prior to the pandemic, and I'm really glad I, I stayed. I think, um, you know, I grew more in the last 18 months than I did, you know, probably in the five years prior, uh, both as a manager and a leader. And it was it was an exciting, it's been an exciting time. And I'm really excited for the future of Microsoft because we've got, uh, you know, so many managers who have done such a tremendous job um, and, and employees for that matter uh, through this pandemic that have kind of lived through this crucible that they're gonna come out so much stronger in the future. And I'm really excited to see uh, how they take the company company uh, forward. Um, but anyway, I, I have a lot of travel plans uh, that I'm really looking forward to. And, uh, you know, we love getting out in nature and just hiking and skiing and doing all that stuff. We're excited to do that. I'm so jealous and um, but excited for you. Uh, talking about leave, I mean, the, the advice that you said, right? Hey, uh, your mom said, uh, leave the place better than you found it. Uh, you definitely have left a mark and left the place, both the org uh, for Catherine and rest of the crew and Microsoft, a much better place than you were when you found it. Uh, so congrats again on the big move, Bob. One question that I had on that, I thought this is uh, close to you in terms of, you always say that you work to live and not live to work. Um, what are your thoughts around that? Um, you come across as a pretty, you know, hard uh, workaholic to me. I mean, the way you've worked before, at least you're like always on. Um, but how do you balance that uh, work to live, live to work? Yeah, I, um, you know, I, for, first of all, I just, I, I get out and do a lot. Like, um, you know, during the pandemic, for example, we were up, we have a place up in the mountains and um, I skied every single day. So yes, I couldn't go to the gym, but boy, I could get out and cross country ski every day. And on the weekends, get out back country skiing and things like that. And, um, and that was just an example of just getting out into nature every single day. So, you know, I, I that's a priority for me, and I'm fortunate that I'm in a position in my career where I can start to make that even a, you know, a, a larger portion of my time to be able to do things, to do things like that. I said in my note that I when I announced my retirement that um, I saw this great saying from Confucius who said, "We have two lives, and the second begins when we realize we have only one." <laughs> so I'll let you let you ponder that for a little bit, but um, you know. Yeah. I, I think I think if you sit and reflect on that, you realize, ah, oh, yeah, we only have one life. We don't have this work life True. and this living life. We have only one. So, but I do, yeah, think, I you know, back, back to your, you're asking a little bit about Microsoft. You know, Microsoft's, I totally, I firmly believe, even though I'm, I personally am stepping aside, Microsoft's days are, you know, it's its best days are ahead of it, not behind it. The it's in a better position than it's ever been. I mentioned just the leadership that we have at this company, but all the way through the managers who come through this 
really difficult time, uh, you know, learning so much under the crucible of, of the pandemic. But you think about our relationship with our customers, how closely we are connected, uh, the fact that the, the entire organization, not just small bits and pieces, but every single person is, you know, practices customer obsession and customer connection. Our customers are in need of uh, not just moving things to the cloud, but actually transforming now. And Microsoft's ability to help them transform has never been, never been greater. And then just the way that the company thinks about its people around model, coaching, caring, uh, has never put it in a better better place than it is right now. So I'm really excited for what the future holds, uh, not only for Microsoft, but probably more importantly for Microsoft's customers. No, thank you, Bob. Uh, thanks for the thanks for that, and uh, best wishes to you and uh, to your wife. Uh, one final question before we wrap up. Yeah. Uh, if you were to reflect back, um, I mean, we all think about things that really stick in our heads as the most important advice that we got. What is the best advice that you ever got and the biggest lesson that you've learned throughout these? It doesn't matter work or life, I mean, throughout your. Yeah, you know, I, I do think that sort of uh, keeping first things first was the best advice I ever got. Um, and, you know, the biggest lesson I learned has just been, um, you know, uh, respect and integrity uh, are earned, not given. And and so, you know, I always go back to like a quote, like the show the world with presence, actions, and the way you lead your life, who you are. Um, I think that's uh, sort of uh, the both the best advice I ever got. And the lesson I've I've learned over time was just throw sh through deeds and actions uh, the way you lead your life and the type of person you are. Thank you, Bob. Thanks for being on the show. And I'm so glad that I caught you before you left. Um, I I'm not sure, but I would I would absolutely love to stay in touch with you and learn more about your adventures um, as you travel. Then maybe you can drop a line here and there. Um, any final thoughts before we drop off? Well, only, only, my only thought is since we're having this podcast and it's you and me at the moment, who knows who else will listen to it. But Trini, you can count on uh, staying connected. You'll have all my all my details. Um, I, I feel very fortunate to have uh, uh, built not just a career, but friendships uh, here and friendships that I know will last a lifetime. And I, I count you as one of those friends. So thank you. Yeah, thanks, Bob. It's, it's, it's an honor to have known you, to work for you as a manager, also to have you as a mentor all these years. I really appreciate uh, everything that you have done. Thank you. Thank you so much.